there. Welcome to the Rim Church Podcast. We're so glad you found us. The Rim Church is based in San Antonio, Texas, and we believe in loving Jesus, building family, and changing the world. Wherever you find yourself today, we trust that it is not by accident that you're listening to this message, and we believe that God has something to speak to you right where you are. For more information on what we're all about, go ahead and visit us at therim.church or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We hope you enjoy the message. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm excited because today we're jumping into a new sermon series that's going to take us through the summer together. And our tagline is love, Jesus, and the people who make it difficult. Now, the spoiler alert here is that we typically are the people that make it difficult. So we typically want to point the finger at, okay, all these people around me. That, that is true. There are people out there that make life difficult, but also as we walk through this book of 1 Corinthians, letting it be a mirror for what, what about my own life is maybe outside of the gospel, outside of, of God's intended plan. So as we jump into 1 Corinthians, our hope is that through this series that we would wrestle with the truth of the scripture. The apostle Paul is writing to this church at Corinth. Now maybe just to help you imagine what Corinth was like, I got a picture here they're going to put up on the screen. So this is Corinth in ruins, but imagine here you've got a city that was rebuilt. And Corinth was actually one of the most fastest growing cities in its time. You see that mountain there. That was kind of what was called the Acropolis. So for some reason the city was attacked. All the people could go up on the mountain and be safe. So this was a place that was near a port. It was flourishing, but also it offered this sense of protection and safety. So Corinth, it was a vibrant collection with a very diverse population. It was a booming city. So think Chicago or New York in the 19th century or L.A. in the 20th century. It was kind of this up-and-coming place where things are booming. There's hustle and there's bustle. There's people coming from every culture and creed. It was a place that you would actually try and go to better yourself. It was just kind of a capitalistic society of Greco and Roman culture. So from a modern day, from a church perspective, you could think of it as a modern day church plant. So Paul, actually, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to the church in Corinth, but this was a church that he himself planted. And as he's writing this, the church would have only been established no more than five years. So it's a pretty young, pretty early church, and it would have been a collection of relatively new believers that were meeting in homes scattered across the city. So it's a modern-day church plant with only a few new adult believers with no prior Christian experience. So nobody grew up culturally Christian. Everybody at this church would have just said yes to following Jesus, and they're trying to figure out what does that mean in the midst of this up-and-coming city. They would have come from a variety of backgrounds, both socially, economically, and philosophically. So as we read this book together, maybe it's helpful to have this framework and we can begin to relate because a lot of things and the reasons people would go to the city of Corinth, our culture today is built on those same principles. We're trying to do everything that we can to, to be better. We live in a very diverse culture that we go to places and we get jobs and careers. We move to different cities at the end of the day to try and advance ourselves and take ourselves and our families to the next level. But here's the thing, their social and economic diversity, it created a lot of problems 
when they met together. Because there's people that have no prior experience of following Jesus, and now they're coming together, and now they're recognizing, hey, we don't come from the same background. Like our philosophical beliefs, like I'm coming from more of a Greco-Roman perspective, this person from more of maybe a Jewish perspective, their, their beliefs are beginning to come into contradiction with one another. Their individual ambition created rivalries about who was right and who was the best. They weren't clear on what key Christian principles were, and they were certainly not clear on how to implement their faith in their culture. None of these people had, had walked with Jesus before Paul showed up. So they're confused. What does it actually look like to put my faith in action in the midst of this culture? They wondered about who best represented Christian thought and practice. Despite the fact that Paul had brought the gospel to them first, they were confused about even the role of the Holy Spirit and their community. How do all these pieces fit together? There's a commentary that William Baker wrote, and he, this is how he would say it. The Corinthian community was young, confused, and adrift in the sea of its own culture. They were embattled by its own immature members with much to learn from from their spiritual father, Paul. It's like us in many, many ways, so much so that the messages of Paul to these Christians enclosed in 1 Corinthians, it speaks to us as well. It's written to them, for them, but it's also for us. So these messages that Paul is writing, they're not so much theological. They're very practical. So it's not just kind of this pie-in-the-sky stuff. It's he's heard stories about what's actually been going on in the community, and he's given them specific instructions for what does it look like to live out your faith in this culture. They're pragmatic, meant to benefit its readers and us. But in solving these practical problems, the Apostle Paul also reveals crucial, universal Christian principles that equip us to deal with our own problems practically. Not just pie in the sky, but love Jesus and the people who make it difficult. You just stick with that tagline. There's a lot there. That we would be equipped to actually, what does our faith look like in practice in our life? In our culture, but also when it comes to, to love, relationships, when it comes to friendship, to marriage, we're going to get into all that through this book. The author of this book, the Apostle Paul, he had planted this church in Corinth. So as we go through this, we'll, we'll get this in just a second. But he's writing to people that he loves. Like, I don't know if you've ever experienced leading somebody to Jesus, or maybe you helped lead a community group or a house church. You've helped walk with somebody closer to Jesus, there's something about that relationship where you want the best for them. You love them. You know them. So as Paul is writing the book of 1 Corinthians, this is not just he's writing randomly to people he's never met. These are people that he would have spent a lot of time with. So he's not just writing randomly. He, when he's writing, he's thinking of specific people that he knows, that he's loved, that he's spent time with. So he would have heard what had been going on in the community at Corinth. So he writes this letter to encourage, admonish, correct, and instruct this church on what living out their gospel identity in everyday life looks like. So with that, I'd love to invite you, if you haven't already, open up your scripture to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we'll be starting in verse 1 together. 
This is what it says. 1 Corinthians 1, 1. Paul, called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of the grace God give, has given to you in Christ Jesus, that you are enriched in him in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So if you're taking notes this morning, the first point is that the invitation to change comes from a place of for, not against. The invitation to change comes from a place of being for, not against. So as Paul is going to write to these believers, and he's heard about what's going on in their lives and in their community, he's writing to them because he loves them. He wants to encourage them. He's preparing them for something. There are going to be some things that they're maybe operating in or some places of their life where it's out of alignment with the gospel. Paul is not writing to try and be against them, to try and tear them down. He wants what is best for them. He, he is for them. And it's important to see here that he's setting the scene here with the posture of thanksgiving. Before he ever gets into talking about, hey, this is what you're doing, this is how it needs to change, Hey, I just want you to know that I'm thankful for you and I'm praying for you. And just from that posture, he begins to speak. I just know even in my own self, if, I, if I'm speaking to someone or I'm hearing from somebody, when it's coming from a place of, hey, I love you and I'm for you and I'm praying for you, whatever it is that you want to say to me, I'm going to be a lot more receptive to listen versus coming straight in and, hey, this is what's right, this is what's wrong, but hey, I see you, I love you, and I'm thankful for you. He is for this church. He's for their flourishing, their good, their sanctification. His desire is that they would be conformed to the image of Jesus. So as we journey through this book together, again, it's imperative that we see it from this perspective. Paul loves this church and he is for them. So absolutely everything that he's going to say is coming from this place of he cares about them and he's preparing them for something good. Now we live in a world today where we all may not receive that because we all have our own truth. Where Paul is, he, there, there's going to be areas of the, the people's lives that are maybe out of alignment with the gospel and so we can be pointing them back to the truth. Because the reality here is that Paul cared more about this church's holiness and relationship with Jesus than he did with, about their personal preferences. Paul cared more about this church's holiness and relationship with Jesus than he did about their personal preferences. So as he's writing this book, he is valuing 
the image of Jesus, preparing them for a day that is coming to present the bride of Christ spotless above what they feel and what they prefer. And we live in a world today where we all live from our own truth. Do what makes you happy. Follow your heart or your truth. But really all that's saying is, hey, you're your own God. Make your own decisions. And if anybody comes in contradiction with that, who cares? You're your own God. But the reality Paul is pointing towards is that the goal for the church, we see this in verse 8, he, being Jesus, will also, also strengthen you to the end so that, so that means something, there's a purpose. Why are you being strengthened? That you would be blameless before Jesus when he comes back. That's the whole point of Paul writing here. He's preparing the bride for the bridegroom's return. That means that we're being conformed to his image, the truth. So as we walk through this book together, maybe there's even just this framework of maybe there are going to be some areas that, ouch, this hurts what Paul is talking about. Like I, I can see that this in contrast to maybe how I'm living my life. And I'll just encourage you, as you wrestle through this book but in life as well, when you're in conflict with somebody, are you focused on your truth, their truth, or the truth? Because those can be different things in a conversation. Is this my truth or is this the truth? And recognizing that both internally and externally. Because I can say something externally, hey, I agree with you. But internally, I'm living from a place of, man, am I living from this is my truth or am I being conformed to the truth? Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And why am I believing this truth? Is it coming from a place of, man, I trust God. He's good. So I don't have to find my satisfaction elsewhere. He's great, so I don't have to be in control. Because the reality is we don't just live in an isolated time bubble, right? Now, it feels like we, we go, we go, we go, we go, but the reality is, that, what's the saying? There's two things that are guaranteed in this life, death and taxes, right? But there's this reality that there's going to be something after us and there's something before us. We don't just work, 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 work for right here, right now, but recognizing we are part of a way bigger story than what we're experiencing right now. That thousands of years have gone before us and that there will be potentially thousands of years after us. We don't know when Jesus is coming again. We're preparing, though, for his coming again and recognizing that we're not in this isolated time bubble. We're part of a bigger story, and the story is pointing to this day when Jesus is coming back again. Now, Paul is preparing this church for Jesus' return, that we as a church, we don't just live isolated, that we would actually be a church that is preparing. We're living based on eternity. We're looking forward to his coming again, and that directly informs how we live today. Those are not separate things. They're linked. They're interwoven. I've been meditating on this, this psalm. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And what does that mean? Or even why is it lamp to your, my feet and light to my path? And I think I've just been meditating on this idea of a lamp to my feet lets me know where I am. Like where am I standing actually? What's going on in my life? I'm able to see clearly, man, what does my heart actually love? What do I care about? A lamp to my feet, and once I know where I actually am, well, I can step up, I can look out, I see the light to the path of where God is inviting me into. 
So God's word is a lamp to our feet that allows us to see where we are, but it's also pointing us to his greater plan and the light to his path. So we go through this book. Paul is writing from this place of, hey, I see you, I love you, and I'm for you. So with that, let's keep going. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, that's Peter, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in Paul's name? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anyone else. What Paul is saying here is, if you're taking notes, point number two, that unity is the foundation for a healthy church. Unity is the foundation for a healthy church because Paul's going to get into a lot with this church. But why does he start with unity? Because in this church, there's divisions. There's rivalries. As he's walking through this letter at, at Corinth, Paul would have been incredibly intentional about when he wrote about different things. He starts with this problem of division because it's ultimately from a place of unity that we get to see Jesus and the Spirit at work. Throughout, throughout Scripture, there's this theme of unity. You see, even in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, there's perfect unity there. Jesus would say, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I will be amongst them. Which, if you read that verse in context, doesn't just mean when I'm with my Christian friend, like the Spirit is there. In context, it's actually talking about reconciliation. It's talking about people that have been divided against each other. And when you come together and you are united and reconciled, there I am in that place. My Spirit is there. It's from places of unity that we see the Spirit move and work. Because Jesus would say it this way. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. A kingdom, a church, a people divided against itself cannot stand. What's going on in our nation? There you have it. A nation divided against itself cannot stand. A church divided against itself cannot stand. So this church at Corinth was divided, but Paul's inviting them back to unity. Because these people, they're saying, hey, I'm following Paul, or I'm following Apollos, or I'm following Peter, or, or Jesus. They've gotten their eyes off of the thing, Jesus. They begin to follow these individual people. To me, I see this as early church denominationalism. They have their own kind of sects and reasons that, hey, we're, we kind of like this flavor of what you're talking about, or we like what this guy is saying, or I listen to this pastor or that pastor. 
But Paul is writing to these people collectively, and he's, he's calling them back to be for one another, not against one another. That even for us as a church, that we'd be people that are for unity. Now again, Paul is writing to people collectively. He knows people, but he's writing to the entire church at Corinth. Now, did everybody at Corinth, were they all divided amongst each other? I'm guessing some people were pretty okay. They didn't run into every single person, but he is addressing them corporately. So I think what we have to see here is the invitation to pursue unity as a healthy church It's not just if I have beef with somebody else or I disagree with somebody else. It's how do we, regardless of if I'm perfectly fine with everybody else or not, how do we be for building up unity collectively? How do I be for and championing unity in my city, in my neighborhood? People that go to different churches that may have a little bit of different theological flavor than than what I may believe. More reformed, less reformed. How do we go, hey, we're team Jesus. And then if our own house is divided it's not going to stand that maybe the reason that we don't see jesus showing up in more powerful ways in our nation is because we're not just nationwide but church-wide we're divided and it's the time for us to to get over and to move past those things and go hey we're taking our eyes off of these individual people maybe we're following we're putting our eyes back on jesus and his hope is for the world it's for our city So how do we get back onto that team and get our eyes back up there? Because unity is central and the foundation for a healthy church. Because how can we proclaim good news? Like, you mean, Jesus has changed my life. If even in our own house that there's divisions... Those things don't go together. That's why unity has to be the foundation for a healthy church. So what does it look like to be an advocate for reconciliation and unity? Let's keep going together. Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Point number three is this. The effectiveness of the gospel rests in the power of Christ's finished work, not our performance. 
The effectiveness of the gospel rests in the power of Christ's finished work, not our performance. So what Paul is saying here is that God does not need us and really doesn't actually want us to puff up the gospel so much that it loses its, its effect. That sometimes we try so hard to make it so eloquent and so beautiful that there's all these words that don't actually make any sense, that we actually don't know what they mean. This is just the script somebody has given us. That he just wants us to put Jesus on the table. To share what Jesus has done in your life. The simple truth of the gospel, Christ crucified. Because we have to remember this. The gospel is not about us. It's for us but it's about God and his glory. This is his story. It's a story about Jesus. So as we communicate that, that our own language would not make it about us or not about making us sound better, but does it actually make Jesus clear? Does it make Jesus accessible? So what gospel are we preaching? Not, we're not meant to pontificate and change the gospel so that it comes across as more receptive, the people around us. Our job is to make the gospel clear. We've talked about this as a church. Sometimes the reason that keeps us from telling other people about the gospel is we don't feel like we can't say it pretty enough. With that friend that I have, I know that they can do a really good job of making it sound really nice and really pretty. What Paul is saying is the power is not in your, just your words. It's his spirit that is working through you. It's not about you. It's not about your words. It's about the spirit that is alive in you proclaiming the gospel and Christ crucified. The message of Jesus is enough. But this, I would say even for us, invites us to this question, do I know the gospel? Like if someone were to ask me, hey, what's the gospel? Am I actually prepared to give an answer to that? Am I prepared to be able to share, hey, this is how Jesus has changed my life, and this is his story. This is the story of God. And if the, it's okay, whatever your answer is. But I would say if the answer is, man, I don't actually think I, I know what the gospel is, or I could explain that. But I receive this as an invitation to, to discover, to be able to articulate what the gospel is. Now, Brad's going to talk about this in a little bit, but quick plug. Uh, my wife and I are going to lead a group this summer that's going to walk through the story of God. And he's going to walk through, hey, if you don't know the gospel, that is a great place that we'd love to invite you to come and experience. What is the story? You would then be able to articulate that and explain that to other people. So Paul's reminding this church that this gospel, this following Jesus, it's going to sound like rubbish to a lot of people. There are people that we may view as wise that are going to be like, hey, this, this is ridiculous what you believe in. And he's saying, hey, the gospel is going to be a stumbling block to some people. Because God does not use the world's standards and measurements to accomplish his plan. He has a, he, this is the upside down kingdom. Kingdom math is different than what makes sense in a lot of ways for, for, for our own math. That Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles because it runs in contrast to everything that the world promotes. It's the invitation to come 
and die. It's the recognition that we have been separated from a relationship with God and we're broken and the problem isn't out there. It's in here. Love Jesus and the people who make it difficult. The problem is that we are all broken in here. The invitation of Christ crucified is not, hey, you're just going to do better and try harder and here's your financial plan to get to here. Without Jesus, we have nothing. And we're broken. So who are we looking at? What are we allowing to form us? Because there's a reality here that the kingdom, kingdom living is upside down to what the rest of the world is telling you to do. It's different. So as we keep going, verse 26. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It's from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became the wisdom from God for our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. An order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul's inviting the church to remember. So again, as he's, all of chapter one is kind of setting the foundation for everything else that's going. It's, it's ending this kind of introduction with a sense of remembering where you come from. Remember your story. Because the reality is that God loves to take imperfect people and, and, and mold them into something that's beautiful for his glory. If you think back on your own life, I'm looking around at a lot of faces in the room that I've gotten to know your story. I'm going, hey, we, we've got some stories in the room. We can tell you what goes on when we're, we're trying to define what's good, right, and perfect for ourselves but, and how, how life was or was not going. And then Jesus stepped in and what began to change and transpire. But to remember Remember who you were. Remember what happened. Remember your past. And remember, because ultimately, everything is for God's glory. It's this idea of boasting in the Lord. And I'll be honest, when I think of boasting in the Lord, what comes to my mind is someone from my probably extended family getting a compliment and just going, glory to God, glory to God. Now, I'm not saying that we should not be people that give God glory in that context, but if that's all it means to boast in the Lord, it's like, okay, I, good. I'm glad that you're giving God glory. But also if you turn it on itself of, okay, well, why is that person even saying glory to God? I'm not, I'm not judging people's motivation. Some people may be totally pure in that, but are they saying that so they'll be appeared like they're giving God glory, but then in, in that appearance, they're actually getting glory because they're, you're now viewing that person better. There's a whole, whole thing of motivation there. So what does it actually mean to boast in the Lord? Now, to understand it, I think we have, what we have to see is at the heart, what's at the heart of boasting. It's either pride or it's humility. 
pride or humility? I got this list from John Piper's team at Desiring God of what is pride? It's boasting in self and not the Lord. It's taking credit ourselves for what God alone can do. It's relying on self and not God. It's feeling sufficient in our own strength and not in God's. It's the disinclination to admit that we are mere earthen vessels so that another gets the glory. And it's the unwillingness to admit weakness that may accent the power of Christ. This is humility. That God loves a heart that boasts in him. He loves the heart that gives him credit for what he alone can do. He loves the heart that relies on his power. And he loves the heart that wants him to get glory in all things, that wants the power of his son to shine in our weakness. Because here's the reality. We were made to boast in God and in the Lord, to ascribe praises to him. We were made to give him credit for good. We were made to rely on his power, and we were made to magnify his glory and his all-sufficiency in our weakness. Boasting isn't just something that we do publicly. Glory to God. Now, that may be part of what it looks like. That's genuine, but it's also something that we ascribe privately. Like in my own heart. Like who, who am I saying accomplish this? Who am I ascribing worth and value to in the private and secret place of our hearts? Who are we boasting in? So as we journey through 1 Corinthians together, may we know that Paul's words here and Jesus' heart is for our good. He's not against us. It's for us. And when the words of Jesus come into contradiction with our lives, we're being invited into something more beautiful, not less. And for us, unity has to be the foundation of who we are as a people collectively, not simply as an individual, but advocating and being part of an active part of unifying the work of the gospel. That we would be a church that doesn't just live for the people, by the people, for ourselves, but recognizing we're part of a bigger story and there's a day coming. We believe that day is quickly coming, that Jesus is coming again. That we're living with that in mind. If you read all, all the, the, the letters in the New Testament, they're all living with this anticipation that it could come any day. We're living today in light of what, we don't want to be caught unaware. We're prepare, being a people prepared for Jesus is coming again, that we be people that would be blameless before the Lamb. That Jesus is both the power of the gospel and the wisdom of the gospel. So as we wrap up this morning, I'd love to invite you to take 120 seconds. Maybe just ask Jesus, what do you want me to know this morning? And then after that, we'll spend some time in prayer together. Just go ahead and take a couple, 120 seconds. Jesus, what do you want me to know this morning? Thanks so much for listening. We hope that today's message resonated with you. 
It's our hope that you wouldn't be merely inspired, but that you would actually be transformed by something you heard today. At the Rim Church, we always ask two questions when processing God's Word. What is God saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? We encourage you to take a moment, reflect, and then to share with a friend or send us a message. We'd love to hear what God is teaching you and how we can help you take your next step in obedience. Until we meet again, we love you, church.